Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We're privileged to have the founder and CEO of H Equities, Elliot Horowitz, here with us today. Elliot, right. it's a pleasure having you on. Um, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, John. Of course. It's great course. to be here in the city today. Happy to see the activity out in the streets. It's amazing. Awesome. Amazing. And Elliot, before we get into business, could you walk us through your journey in commercial real estate and how and why you got into this industry? Sure. So for a long time, 10 or 15 years, I was a stockbroker, trader on Wall Street, many, many years. After a while, that business changed dramatically. So I said to myself, right, Elliot, you know, like, what are you going to do, right? You have to do something with your life. So I said, you know, I know a lot of people in real estate. Let me try real estate. Now, I didn't know anything. So, you know, I became a broker. I didn't know much. I learned along the way. I worked at a bank. I learned more along the way. I learned. I worked for uh, an owner. I learned along the way. And then I finally said, and this was at the age of like 35, 40 okay. when I changed my career path, right? It wasn't like I was 25. And I just learned along the way. And I found out that, you know, I know all these people with money. Mm. I know all these people who have real estate. There's got to be a way to make that into a business, right? And I figured that I didn't really want to be the operator because it's a different skill set. But I, I liked the math behind the deals. And I liked watching how a property could be, look like look like property A today, but then turn into property B, right? So I said, you know, if I could find the right people who I know, and they sometimes raise capital, let me sort of put that together, Connecting. right? And that's why I said, you know, let me do it that way. And it worked out, right? So I just found a niche. because I didn't want to be the operator. I didn't have all the money in the world either to be the guy who's buying everything. But I put the two together, and it's, you know, thankfully, on the debt side, it's worked out. On the equity side, it's worked out. I just, I found the niche where people who have money couldn't find deals. Or they thought they found deals, but they weren't maybe mm. that good, or they mm. weren't whatever it was. And people who sometimes wanted to raise capital or needed capital couldn't find it sometimes. And I had it readily available to some degree. So it kind of worked out that way. That's awesome. That's great. And so you got into the business at 35, correct? I got into the real estate business at approximately... Actually, it's probably closer to even uh, 40. I hate to admit okay. it, right? But okay. it's probably even closer to 40. Right. Um, and just now that I'm a little older than 40, I'm 57 now. So it's been, um, I, as my company standalone, I've been in business about seven or eight years, okay. you know, putting the deals together and taking GP sides right. or debt depositions. But it was a long, you know, process of right. learning how to get to where it is. Like, I didn't start at the bottom, per se, but I definitely did not start Started, at the top, yeah, right? right? And in fact... When I started my business, I wanted to be sort of like focused in Brooklyn. And because I lived in Brooklyn, mm. and I literally drove every block north, south, east, west of all of northern Brooklyn. Wow. I mean, literally, I wrote down every ad. Like, I did a lot to figure out what to do. And it took a lot of time, a lot of time to get it up and running properly. But thankfully, it's on a decent track. That's and, awesome. Um, yeah. I'm, and I'm you've done very well. It. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> yeah, I really am. And who was your kind of first mentor in the business that kind of walked you through how to navigate it? In the real estate. Okay, so I'm going to mention an individual who's much older than I am. His name is Richard Calico. He's a well-known name. He's probably not listened to a podcast. <laughs> I'm not even sure his son listens to podcast, right? But Richard, I guess, is 20 years older than I am by now, if not older, always had this very blunt, straightforward advice about real estate. He he wasn't a spreadsheet guy, mm -hmm. and he wasn't a HP, whatever, calculator guy. He was a very street smart brass tactics kind of investor and kind of operator. Mm. He just always had this very homegrown, you know, here's the bottom line, cut to the chase. Right. Don't don't deviate no BS. from that. And it really it, it helped me a lot with that in in terms of figuring out how to invest. And then luckily enough, I just like knew a lot of people as well. And I was always able to take like tidbits from this mm. guy and that guy and right. the other guy. But I always got good advice from Richard over the years. And I would just call him, I'd be, I'd be stuck on a problem and go, here's what you do. Right you know, like in a minute and a half, you awesome. had the whole thing like, you know, figured out and drilled out. Like, oh, great, thank you. It just saved me like <laughs> six weeks of uh, racking my brains potentially. But he, he was really good. And I hope, he's, I hope he's able to give a lot of people some advice. To, right. He was a little older today, but he's, I think he's still active in the business. Awesome, great. I'm going to call him this week now. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. Totally. And could you uh, describe to the audience um, what your company H Equities is and what you kind of focus on? So we have a debt and equity business, and we invest in, on the equity side, we invest in apartment buildings, and to date we have buildings in New York, New Jersey, Atlanta, North Carolina, and small presence in Philadelphia. Awesome. And, um, and we have medical office properties we own across New Jersey, okay. and those are all mostly very long-term investments that we want to make. Um, we do sell things periodically when there's an opportunistic reason, but generally speaking, we own these properties, and we probably will hold them for very long extended periods of time. And then we have a debt business where we provide a senior financing, mezzanine financing, and preferred equity. 
We've lent on pretty much every asset class imaginable, maybe not a hotel or a bowling alley, right. let's say, but we've lent on everything. And those investments have been up and down the East Coast, a little bit down South. And we made one investment in California a few years ago because we had a partner on the ground uh -huh. there and a little easier to navigate. Um, and we've expanded, you know, now in size a little bit. And we made a, we did a, a lot of business in the small lending space okay. very selectively. And now, thankfully, that's been increasing over time. Awesome. And there's a lot of opportunity in that space as well. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. And how long before opening H Equities did you kind of strategize on your thesis or your vision? Uh, since 1966 when I was oh, born. Wow. No, I don't know. I, so when, when I was, um, like I said, I was a stockbroker and trader and that business changed. I went out, I left it. So as I went from like sort of one position to another, I was always trying to figure out what am I missing, right? Mm -hmm. What was I missing being a mortgage broker while mm -hmm. I was doing some business, but I wasn't doing enough business? What was I missing while I was a real estate lender? Did I really, when I was working at a bank, the, the corporate environment maybe was a little stifling, maybe, mm. right? So I always tried to figure out what was I missing. So every time and every way you go someplace in life, you have to take the, whether it's a bad experience or not, you have to take some good from that experience, mm. right? So I always tried to figure out what am I missing? What did I, what did I do wrong? Because nobody ever blames themselves, right. right? No one, you know, everyone's always perfect, right? What did I do wrong? What can I take from this experience? And how do I move on and create something bigger and better? And, and, and I still do it today. Mm. I mean, I'm 57, but I'm still doing it today, trying to figure out what the next three years going to look great. like. How do I plan for the next 10 years? What do I do to strategize for that? And I'm still, like, you know, still trying to figure it out. But that's, that's awesome. We still we're still doing it. And so it's a, I think it's always an ongoing process. Okay. And what's your what's your like 15 to 20 year vision for H Equities? What, what do you want the firm to turn into? Right. That's a really good question. So I think of that too. So I um, do everything myself. Okay. Right. I've started by myself. Do everything by myself. I've now outsourced a lot. I'm grateful that I have other family offices with I can partner up with and I do deals with, and it's really grateful. And some of them now have younger family members who are bright and energetic. Right. And I want to grow that with the young, bright, energetic people because they have a different way of looking at things, and it's very good to have that. I have my way, and which works, and but sometimes so fresh what, we're gonna, what we are we are growing into is a larger company by virtue of the fact we've made partnerships with other families and whatnot. And whether or not I have. I don't know that I need 20, 30, 50 employees. I kind of like to run things lean, lean and mean, yeah. but I want to grow the, the network of investors, which we've been doing you know, slowly over time, and grow the network of partnerships because this way, particularly on that, with operators who need capital, mm. uh, you know, we're all about sponsor. We're very sponsor-driven. Whether we make a debt investment or an equity investment, we're very sponsor-driven. So I think what I hope will be is I'll keep thinking high-level how to grow things, and I'll keep having my partnerships with my right. current partners and we'll grow that organically. And they have certain strains and skill sets and I have maybe certain strains and skill sets, hopefully, and that'll help the company grow and own more over time and make more loans over time and have successes with you know, a variety of more sponsors. Awesome, great. And how do you kind of evaluate an operator? Like what, what, how do you know somebody's the right person for the job? Well, so luckily, I know a lot of people. So that's like 90% of it for okay. me. If a guy calls me, and I know for 25 years, it. it's just a lot easier to say, oh, I can come in with you, right? So most of the equity investments we've made, possibly 90% of them have been with people I know for a long time. Repeat business. Right. But no more long time, right? The one-offs here and there have been people who I've known a long time mm -hmm. who've referred me, said, hey, you should be talking to these guys. Got They're it. class A, right? And it turns out they were. So I get a lot of referrals, which I like a lot, both on the debt side and the equity side. I get a lot of pitches from people. And I think, you know, within a minute, I could tell if I want to do a deal or not. I'm okay. very quick with a no. And maybe I'm too quick sometimes, right? But I'm very quick with a no. I get a certain feeling when I speak to people if if I can, A, trust them, because to me, nothing's more important. Right. I got to trust that they're doing what they're doing. If they can execute, you know, if a guy's telling me he's going to sell that a three cap in five years from now, I have no interest, even in a three cap market, which we don't have anymore. I have no interest. Right. I want people that have sort of their, their, their feet on the ground and their head not in the skies, right? I want them yeah. to work hard, you know, which is great, but they have to have realistic projections and they have to be sort of, you know, honest in their thinking and critically and critical of themselves, meaning, like I say, what can go wrong here? If I ask mm. you a question, what can go wrong here? you don't have the answer to that, that's not good. You have to have an answer to what can go wrong because things really, you know, a friend of mine has a saying, once the money leaves the account, it may not come back. Right. And, and he's right, you know, so it may not come back. So you have to have the, uh, an answer to what can go wrong here. And most people don't. Hmm. Most people okay. don't. And how much would you say that, uh, how much emphasis, emphasis would you put 
on the sponsor and how much would you put on the deal? Like what's the split, the percentage? I am very sponsored. Okay. I don't know if it's 90, 10, 50, 50, but if a great, I, 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 great sponsors typically come up with great deals. Got it. Right. And less experienced sponsors sometimes come up with great deals and they do. And then they become more experienced sponsors, right. but sometimes they're just making things up and it's, 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 it's an unfortunate fact or they're not making it up, but they're just not realizing the mm. dynamic of the market that may change because they don't have the experience that somebody else does and say, hey, you know what? Things may change in a year or two. Right. They may get better, but what if it changes? What's what's you know, what's your plan? Like, you and gotta prepare for that. Most people aren't prepared for that. And most people don't have a plan for the what if. What mm. if something goes wrong? What are you gonna do? I find most people don't have that plan. Mm. Got it. And and as far as um value add strategies that you've seen some of these operators employ. What are some of like the out of the box or creative value add strategies that you've seen for any asset class? Right. There are some guys that are so smart. I don't know how they come up with it, right? Like there are guys that they could look at a, I have a friend of mine. He lives in lives in Long Island. Now lives in Florida. He'd like look at like a, like an airfield, okay. right? And then he, he can buy an airfield in wherever, I don't know, Wisconsin, let's <laughs> say. And then he ends up putting like a, a, a jungle gym there and a, a trampoline park and whatever. I go, how did you figure that one out? <laughs> As well, look at the demographics. I drove her and he just figures, and he, wow. he becomes a success. He finds this like out of the box quirky stuff. And he doesn't like make two times his equity. He makes like, I don't know, six or seven. I got kind of best with him. He goes, wow. no, because <laughs> he doesn't need the he money. Need, yeah. But he's very aggressively creative. That's one way. Then you have guys that just, work hard and figure out how to save the money right. on the water bill, on the heating bill, on the repairs. And they, and they create value in that way, right? Then you have guys who just, they may have tenants in mind or tenants looking for space and they have that angle and they want to buy, you know, that building on that corner because right. they know they can plunk the tenant down, right? And that's also highly creative. Um, I'm not creative, right? I like to follow the creative people and that's what I've, I've, I'm trying to do as best I can. And, um, that strategy kind of works. I, I, I value when someone says to me, hey, I can buy this property. Here's what I can do to it. I'm like, oh, how'd you figure that one out? <laughs> yeah. you know? And it's, it's pretty bright. It's awesome. awesome. It's, some people have to have this sort of edge, like okay. an angle, they can figure it out. That's awesome. And have you seen any um, creative value add strategies for rent-stabilized buildings? Zero. <laughs> no, rents, the rent-stabilized business, and we own a bunch of rent-stabilized buildings, that was one of the greatest businesses in the world for a long time. If you're a good landlord, you treat your tenants right, you always end up making money because eventually they left, right. eventually bought them out, you took their apartment, you paid them fairly, and you went on and you took the $1,000 rent, made it 3000 with the market. That was a tremendous value-add strategy by natural organic growth. True, yes, there were landlords who tried to force people out, which mm -hmm. is always a terrible thing and do whatever they would do, but if you just played the game straight and narrow, you had to make money over time. You know, along came the rent-stabilized laws, which crushed the business, crushed the equity. It crushed tenants' dreams, right. too, because some tenants had leases. And I'm not even sure the politicians know or care, right? Because some tenants had leases that had value to them. If you had a lease in Park Slope or Cobble Hill or Carroll Gardens or Upper West Side, Upper East Side, that had a lot of value yeah. to that lease. That might have been their only asset, potentially. Yeah. And it could be more at 50 grand, 100 grand, 200, 300, whatever number. So... That, that those laws hurt investors and hurt you know and not every investor is wealthy and not every landlord right. is rich and not and most landlords i would i don't know for sure i'm gonna guess most landlords own a building or two they probably live in apartment 1l right. and have a job full-time and kill themselves right. taking care of their tenants and they have nothing but tax increases and insurance increases and no rent increases i don't know of a value-add strategy mm -hmm. right now other than buying a vacant building which could do it rent control building if you can buy a rent control building probably has a value-add strategy because rent control is so far i think the only thing they haven't touched yet in terms of being able to increase rent to market um i don't know that everyone's using that frankenstein loophole mm. i think it's going to disappear mm, i think okay. every loophole is going to disappear it's become very difficult um from, from a landlord's perspective to make money and to, have to add value right by following the book letter of the law right. very difficult right and it's a challenge. And it was a great business. And maybe one day somebody will wake up and vote differently. Maybe right. the voters will wake up and vote differently one day and it'll change. But it should be fair to, to tenants. And, and but it, should, it should be fair to landlords who have to pay the taxes mm -hmm. that fund the city's operations, yep. which the politicians never speak about either, right? So so do you ever see that shifting in like the next 15 to 20 years? Politicians kind of opening their eyes and seeing that it's not productive what they're doing? I don't know. I mean, look, politics, like a lot of things, is a pendulum, right? Right. Maybe it swings too far left. Right. 
uh, too far right to start, not good. Maybe it swings too far left, not good. Most people, I think, are down the middle somewhere, but for whatever reason, the fringes seem to be winning, yeah. you know? So we got to get things back to the middle. middle. I would hope that would take it, but it's not the politicians, the people who vote or people who don't vote. There was a primary in New York on Tuesday. I think 5% of registered voters came out Five percent, like nobody cares. Wow. Then they could they have the audacity to complain. <laughs> you know, like they don't care. Right. So if you don't come out to vote, whether you like this person, you like that person, whatever. If five percent of the people come out to vote, or eleven percent, I think for De Blasio when he was voting right. the second yeah. time, I think eleven or fifteen, some small, minuscule number come out to vote. It's just not enough. So the people have to wake up and exercise their, you know, people are dying around the world for the right, right to vote. You can do it for free. You can just, right. you know, go to the school, well, or go to the yeah. building, and just might as well just go spend 15 minutes Definitely. and do a little research to who you're voting for and just you know, exercise your right, you know? right. But they don't do it. So I don't know. Will it change? Probably. Okay. Will it be 10 years? I don't know, 20 years? Got it. Five years? Up in the unknown. <laughs> Way up in the unknown. Definitely. The unknown. And could you tell us about your medical office properties? What, what kind of attracts you to this investment? Great question. So for now, we own Medical Office with one partner who's a great operator. I love them to death. If you're listening, you know who you are. Right? <laughs> I'm going to make you listen later. I love them to death. Um, we're in New Jersey because we like suburban New Jersey, generally speaking. You know, you can't Amazon Medical Office away, right? You can't telenet everything medical. Medical. You can do some, but if you need an ultrasound, if you need a sonogram, if you have to deliver a baby, if your foot is broken, God forbid, if you need something you have a cracked tooth, you're going to the doctor. Right. You can't do that over your cell phone. I've done a few televisit, telemedicine visits during COVID. Three out of the four r resulted in going in to see right. something, doing something, right? You had to go in. Oh, you should come in. Oh, thank you. I tried to come <laughs> in a month ago, you know? So it's generally very stable. A lot of these tenants are sticky. A lot of them have um, a lot of infrastructure in their building. They have equipment, things. Some of them have 30, 40, 50 year old, 50 year old practices mm -hmm. that they now sell to the next younger generation yeah. of doctors who come into the neighborhood. It's just a nice, generally stable product. It doesn't get hot, doesn't mm. get cold, it just sort of exists. You have nice little cash flows, it grows over time, and it's been good. It's been awesome. Good. And are there any kind of like downsides to investing in medical office uh, buildings that you've seen? None whatsoever. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think there's always a downside to everything, right? right. right? So, you know, are you going to lose population in the neighborhood? Maybe you know, mm. is, the, is the internet really going to take over medicine? Probably not. Like there's always an, an unknown risk. Will whatever reason that township raise their taxes by seventy five percent? Yeah, there's always a risk. But I, I, as a general rule, it's been. And I know over time, it's been a very sort of stable, Steady. sort of stable um, asset class. Awesome, that's great. And I want to ask for your perspective on Class B and C office buildings. That's been a big... I was actually waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's been a big right. problem recently. So yeah. what what do you think is the solution to this problem? Okay. I don't have the solution. A possible right? solution. I, I, so I could say office has been lumped into one bucket, right? right? So there's office in Manhattan, which some very smart people are picking up buildings, what they believe is on the cheap, and they're not dumb people, yeah. right? There's office in San Francisco, which is nobody's coming anymore, which is... I, I again not to be too political, but it's all politically driven, right, unfortunately. Right. Politics drives business, unfortunately, and people don't want to talk about it. It's terrible over there. Mm -hmm. But there are pockets of strength in Miami. There are pockets of strength down south. There are pockets of strength in some places in New Jersey. Right. There are pockets of strength that people are really overlooking. So if you have a class C property, you better upgrade it because no one's gonna want it, right? right. If you're gonna build a class A property, you're taking a lot of risks because you don't know. And, but, you, but you always took risk building a building. So whether it was interest rates were 3% or there was no COVID or nothing existed, but we actually are, are looking at a couple of office loans okay. that we're going to make. Uh, we like the sponsors. Mm. We like their locations. Mm. You know, things have to jive, you know, perfectly, uh, but they have good business plans. So if, it, if it's a good sponsor, good business plan, good location, we don't have a problem making a loan, whether it's a senior loan, a mezzanine loan, we're okay Great. with it, provided, you know, everything kind of checks out. Um, but there are people that are, there are definitely some, I mean, it's not all rosy, actually, which goes back to why, especially in New York, city workers should be in the office five right. days a week and set the example. The example hasn't been set yet. I'm hopeful over time that we get back to significantly more occupancy. Some office buildings will be obsolete and go, and go by the wayside. Right. Maybe they'll be converted into something else, mm -hmm. whether that something else is an apartment building, maybe it's a medical office building, maybe it's a big piece of retail. that, And people like to shop still, so retail's you know not dead. People do like to shop. Um, 
some will be good and some will just go by the wayside. Got it. What do you think would be effective conversion of office buildings? Residential? I don't know. Some of these office buildings don't have the floor plates. Res. My, mm. my developer my developer friends who are smart say, oh, you can't do this and that. Like, they know all these things. I go, okay, that sounds good to me. So I think some could probably be converted into residential, depending, you know, where, where they are. Mm. Um, some, maybe there's a different space no one's thought of yet. Like, maybe it's a three-floor Apple store right. on the 80th floor of whatever. Or when Harry Mackle put the Apple store in a... You know, in the basement of the GM building, the GM building was rat infested and waterlogged, you know, yeah. so in the, in the basement. So maybe some creative guy like you, you're young, right? Maybe some creative guy comes across with something. I'm not, like I said, I'm not that creative, but I think there's going to be a lot of empty space in mm. some places, but a lot of places that will be very successful in office. Okay, awesome. Mm. Um, and how would you recommend for someone, let's say they just graduated college and they want to be an operator, how do they get into this business of raising capital and finding deals with no track record? Yeah, it, it's very hard, right? You might get lucky in an upmarket because people think you're nice and right. whatever, and they'll give you money, not, not paying attention. But you really have to get a, a, a lack, not, not no pun intended, a foundation mm. in the business. You have to learn things. As much as young people, and I, I think I was young once, right? <laughs> but as much as young people who have a lot of energy think they know a lot, you still have to learn things. Right. Some There are some young guys and ladies that come out there the gate and bam, they just got it and they run with it, mm. right? But most of us are mortals, right? right? And have to figure out, you have to build that, again, like that foundation. You have to work for somebody, you have to figure it out. You can't become the CEO day one, mm. generally speaking. Does it happen? Yes, it happens, right. right? It does happen. But generally speaking, if you come from real estate family background, you've had an edge. If you're starting straight out, there's always opportunity mm. to make it in any business, no matter what it is. But you need a foundation. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, it's my first deal, and I want to build a million square feet, I'm going to say, good luck, and uh, right. I wish you luck, and hope someone's going to find, why, why, can't you start like a 5,000 square foot? Right. Why, you know? <laughs> so you have to sort of, you know, have, have a realistic expectation. Um, and it doesn't mean you need 35 years experience mm -hmm. with somebody, but you have to get a grounding. You okay. gotta learn from day one. Raising money and taking care of investor capital is really complex. Mm -hmm. You have to really, really go I, I'm, I'm deathly afraid of losing a nickel right and it's happened everyone right. loses money no one's talked about it either but right. periodically people lose money right so you have to just not only understand the building how to create it how to do it how to raise the money how mm. to pay investors it's right. a lot going into it and you just can't develop that in 15 minutes right. I, at least i don't think you can definitely and let's say somebody came to you right and they said i don't have a track record i have no experience in the business um but i want to make this work what what would you want to see from them um to kind of make up for the fact they have no track record. If somebody came to me at the deal they found, let's say it's the greatest deal on the planet. Right. Oh my God, you found the killer. I'd say, I'll be your partner. Okay. Well, I'll, bring in my, I'll bring in one of my partners as an operator. Right. You'll split it with us and that's how you'll get your first deal done. But I don't know, I don't know that even if it's the greatest deal in the world, you have to have a complete, especially when you have other people's money at risk, you have to have complete faith that that person can execute. Because things go wrong no matter how smart you are. You can have 15, 20, 30 years experience and things just you know go wrong, right. and that 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 and that's you know not your fault. That the inspector doesn't show up for two months. That's not your fault. They just go wrong, and after that, it be handled. Mm -hmm. Then things go, and you, or you just might make a mistake. Right? It happens, right. right? So if someone had a great deal and had no experience, but they're smart and they're wicked smart, and they found an opportunity, I would just say, hey, let's partner. We'll figure okay. it out. Understood. But uh, it would have to be like primo, and I'd have to make sure one of my partners would want to operate and do it because I'm not an operator. Right? Okay. I, I, don't, I don't want to become one. And <laughs> a different skill set. You know? Got it. And can you walk us through a deal that you thought would be a layup um, and you kind of got surprised by how it went or what would you have done differently? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> right. If we had a less, so I can get specific. So we bought um, a bunch of years ago, uh, surprised to the good side or the bad side? Because I, I have two I have stories on both. both. Let's see both. both. Okay. So I'll start with the, the negative side first because no one talks about <laughs> that. So we bought a couple of small buildings in Miami a few years ago with the intent of getting scale in the neighborhood, right? So we bought these two buildings, they're old and beat up, and we started renovating them and whatnot. But one of our partners was going down there enough and checking on everything and making sure everything was going right. on properly. It was great. COVID came along. It took care of the travel. Nobody's fault, right? Mm -hmm. Contractors kept doing work, kept doing work, not doing work, doing things not right. We were on top. We got totally hosed, right? We just mm -hmm. really got taken advantage of. We weren't there. Like lesson learned. You gotta now it wasn't our fault necessarily because it was hard to get there during COVID. People weren't traveling, people right. were afraid, can't blame anybody. But the people we put trust in, you know, were untrustworthy. So mm -hmm. we, we, we had 
a negative experience. And to make it worse, we were trying to buy nine buildings in the area to give us a little bit of scale. Mm. We weren't successful in buying those buildings because what we found was, from our experience, the first two buildings, we said, hey, we need a big discount because mm. you have like termites here and you have problems there and whatever it was, we need like a really big discount. And we couldn't get that discount. Mm. So we didn't get the scale, which was problem two, which sometimes when you have scale, the smaller problems end up you know, negating. So that was an experience where COVID came, nobody's full. Mm. Okay, so that was one experience. I can give you experience too, where we were building a building in Brooklyn, and my dear friend, the sponsor, you know, totally got in, in over his skis, and I said, hey, "You gotta stop funding this." Like, I'm not funding the capital calls. I'm right. not doing it for my group. I think you should sell the thing and just like you know move right. on, right? Like, no, we're gonna raise money. We're gonna get it done. We're gonna, the spreadsheet says a forecast, and I love the guy to death. Love him. I hope you're listening too, because <laughs> I, I do love you, you know. But um, it didn't work, and we ended up losing a lot of money, right? Mm. So sometimes you have to know when to call it quits. You have to know when to get out, right. take the loss. And like I did another podcast, like take the loss and just move on, you know, and do something else with your life. And then on the positive side, um, two great examples. A couple of years ago, we bought a property in Atlanta with this family office, and we bought it at a, at a, at a, three years ago, actually. And we bought it at a very per door cheap valuation because there was, at the time, inefficient debt on the property about mm. five and a half percent already nobody wanted that right. right so long story short we bought it at a great price but like, 10 months later some guy comes along and goes hey i'll buy it from you for full market price and you paid the fees and so oh, like, wow. really oh my god so he, uh, it wasn't meant to do, it was meant to hell for five years six years seven years let let let, let the loan burn off right. you know, it wasn't meant for that whatsoever we, were, we have a building nearby we're raising rents nicely great neighborhood and we sold it in a year and did very well just because somebody came along right. and said it'll pay us a market price, provided we pay off the the fees, and it was like a great, you know, excellent return, right. you know, for investors. Thankfully, and then a couple of years ago, we did a, a debt investment. A friend of mine bought a pool of defaulted mortgages, mm. and we provided him note to note financing, and we also took equity in the deal. I was like, wow, this sounds too good to be true, but I know you're smart. I know you're brilliant. I don't know how it's going to work out. I have all the faith in you. I think we've done the right job underwriting. And it worked out amazingly well. Like wow. everything he said, like lock, step, barrel, boom, wow. boom, boom. Great. It was tremendous. Now, not everything always works out that way, but it was tremendous. And the investors also, the debt investors did well, the equity investors did well. And it was really worked out mm. almost to the exact what he said it would. And I was very pleased about that because normally it doesn't. You know, you're going with the best intentions and right. most things end up working out, but sometimes they do you know, a little bit worse. Mm. You're not happy. Sometimes they do a lot better. You're always happy. But for the most part, things just go along a path of Got hopefully it. where it's supposed to go. Um, but Great. yeah, you're, you're always going to get some surprises one way or the other. Definitely. And mm. and how do you know when to when to cut a loss or when to let an investment ride out? Yeah. So my three first words were mommy, daddy, and sell. You okay. know, so <laughs> I was a stock trader also, right? So you have to know, right? If you can't figure out in 15 minutes that you're wrong, mm. then you're wrong, mm. right? So you have to figure out what was your plan going in? Okay, great. What deviated? Great. Oh, we have our first cost overrun. Okay, not the end right. of the world. Maybe second cost overrun. You're wrong. You just can't realize mm. it. You can't. Most people, there's a, we all have psychological challenges, right? Most people just can't admit they're wrong. Right. They just can't. And you just have to know when you're wrong. You have to say, I'm doing something wrong here. I got to get out. I got to tell mm -hmm. my, now, if you have investors, it does make things complicated because you know, nobody with a, good, with a good conscience wants to lose investor capital. Right. But you have to know you're wrong. And I think many investors will appreciate that. But some people put good money after bad. I generally will not fund the capital call mm. if I don't think that's going to be successful. Okay. And most capital calls I will not, I, I haven't funded. Got it. And unfortunately, it didn't work out, right? Mm -hmm. and it is unfortunate. Some people put more money in and more money in. They're afraid to get diluted, but you're getting diluted anyway by putting in more money yeah. if you're not a trillion percent certain not fooling yourself certain, but really certain mm -hmm. that you have an exit strategy that will, if not make you a profit, get you out at least whole, yeah. right? And we've had some challenges with that, but you, it's an innate feeling. Like, again, I, I go back to where I'm afraid to lose money, right? So I'm afraid to lose money. If I'm wrong on the pro, if I'm wrong a year later, what we said we thought would happen, and we're wrong because it's our fault or cost overruns and we didn't do this right or the you got you to sometimes just cut the loss. sell the dream to the next guy and cut the loss. Because maybe it. the next guy is smarter than you. Mm. And maybe he'll be successful and figure it out. Or right? maybe he won't. Got it. But if you wait till you buried yourself, you're always going to lose more than you want. Mm. Always. It's just 100% certain you're going to lose more money. Okay. Understood. And I want to ask about the interest rate environment and what you're kind of seeing. So with the rising interest rates um, and the debt environment shifting so quickly in the past year, what trends are you seeing now that didn't exist before? So 
generally speaking, most banks, from a bank perspective, you know, most banks are getting less leverage, mm. and their rates are obviously a little higher than it was a, a year ago. I, I guess in March of 2020, I think I'm losing track of time, when interest rates were three and a quarter percent, everyone was pretty smart, right? right? So I guess everyone who was paying attention knew rates would go up eventually, eventually. They went up real quick, real fast, 500 basis points in 12 or 13 months, and now potentially you know, going up again a little right. bit more. So that changes the dynamic of when people wanted to refi properties. That changes the dynamic of people trying to buy properties. So banks for certain have pulled back on leverage. Bridge lenders who didn't have a lot of high leverage legacy loans are still in business and mm. actively lending. Mm. And I'm finding from our perspective, we're finding a, a better quality sponsor. Mm. We're getting better rates and those sponsors can execute. Mm. So they understand the cost of capital. They understand what they're doing. But you can lend to some people at 6% and they can right. still lose money. So right. in, I don't think the rate necessarily affects the success of the project. In some cases it does. Mm. But you know, we've lent, even in low interest rate environments, we've lent to people at 8, 9, 10, 12, mm. 14. They were very successful mm. in their projects. Very successful. And then you can lend to somebody at 4% and then they go, you know, unfortunately, down the tubes. Right? right. So the banks have cut back. Some bridge lenders have cut back. Leverage has been cut back, generally speaking. And everyone keeps saying, I don't know what's going to happen. So my answer to that is, did you know what was going to happen a year and a half ago? Like you didn't know mm -hmm. then, you, you thought you knew then how smart you were with the spreadsheet that says a four cap exit, but you never really know what's going to happen. You Again, people fool themselves into thinking they know what's going to happen. You can only kind of deal with what's happening, right? So what's happening now is rates are up a lot. Okay, mm -hmm. great. You know, deal with it. Are they going to go up more? Maybe. Are they going to go down a lot? Probably not in the near couple of weeks or months. Like, And a lot of people tell me I'm going to refi next year when rates are down. And my answer is, how do you know that's going to happen? Yeah. And the next answer is, if you think rates will go down, you should just like buy a yacht, sail off the St. Parks, <laughs> and just trade interest rate futures <laughs> along the way, and you'll make a thousand times the money yeah. doing that in leveraged interest rate futures trading than you will in refining your property at 4.5%. Right? Right. So just do that. I mean, don't bother with real estate. Why? Who, who wants to work hard? Yeah. You know? So I don't know what's going to happen. I have thoughts in my head as to what might happen. But I don't think anyone really knows. Right. Really knows. Got it. And let's say somebody watching this right now is brand new to real estate. Could you describe to them what difference it is between preferred equity and the MES loan? And what does that mean to you as a lender? Okay. So essentially, from an investment perspective, forget the legal perspective, which I'll touch on, but I don't know right, enough right. about, let's say. From an investment perspective, you're still in second position to the senior lender, to right. the bank. Your priority to the sponsor's capital. So if when the waterfall comes and the bank gets paid back, then you get paid back, hopefully they, then the sponsor gets their equity, their investor's right. equity back, and everyone's happy. If something goes wrong, unfortunately, the bank hopefully gets paid back, your pref or mez position, which is second, you know, again, second position, prior, uh, junior to the bank, uh, hopefully you get paid back. The sponsor may not get the money back. So that's, you know, the legal perspective is one's a recorded, one's an, the preferred equity, and again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV even, right? <laughs> but the preferred equity are written to an operating agreement right. as a member of the entity, and you have certain control rights, takeover rights, management rights. The bank typically, hopefully, will give you a recognition agreement. Mm -hmm. If, God forbid, something goes wrong, um, you can step in and hopefully right the ship. In a mezzanine loan, you have an actual loan on an entity that controls the right. borrower. You could also step in. There's some sort of foreclosure process. Again, I'm not, I've never thanked God to take anyone to foreclosure. I'm happy I haven't personally had to do that. Um, I'll leave the legal issues. But essentially, it's a second position. You get a higher rate of return than the senior lender. You get priority return mm -hmm. over the over the um, investor's capital. And if you're success, if your bar was successful, you'll be successful. Got it. And and from from the borrower's perspective, what in what cases would they prefer a preferred equity loan versus a mezzanine loan? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. Some people say I only want mez or mm -hmm. I only want preferred equity. And then my first question is, does your bank even allow it? Right. right? Oh, they don't allow it. Then you can't take either without you know being in default, right? Yeah. So. I think some of them have this perspective that if it's a mez loan, you can foreclose faster. And I'm, I'm saying, well, do you, think I'm, you know, do you have any reason why you think I'm going to foreclose on you? Like, <laughs> you're not going to be successful, yeah. you know? So I always try to answer and back in a hopefully logical way, like, what's your hangup? Mm. And I can only tell them, look, I can only do what your loan docs say I can do, and I can only do what's best for us. Mm. So if it's best for us in that particular structure is a mezzanine loan, we have to do a mezzanine mm. loan. If what's best for us is a preferred equity, we'll be happy to do. I'll be happy to do whatever works for both of us. But ultimately, the loan docs will get or will guide, and our feeling about what the investment should be will guide, right? But 
every investor has their, every sponsor borrower has their own, you know, thing in their head right. what they think is right, and they should. Okay, but it doesn't mean the lender will agree to it. Got it. And when it comes to the interest rate situation, how how do you think that's going to shake out in the next five to ten years? What what I'm prediction gonna, do you I'm have? I'm going to go trade interest rate futures now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Take my yacht, based on parts, your... <laughs> right? Which I don't have. How's it going to shake out? Okay, so if I if I was so for three or four years, I've been saying to everybody that I know that rates are going to go up, rates are going to go up, and, I, and I've been wrong for three or four years, right. right? So if you short the bond market three years ago on my brilliant analysis, right, you have been feeding that transaction for a long time, right. losing money, losing money, losing money until either you gave up and lost all your money, or hopefully get you could feed it to make your money back. Probably what will happen. Again, I'm not you know smart enough to know. Probably what will happen is rates will stay elevated for a bit. Mm. Why am I guessing? I'm, I'm saying that because I guess Jerome Powell and our president all told us, you know, it's all transitory, it's going to go away, don't worry about it. That was 18 months ago or 14 months ago, it hasn't. Now they're telling us, oh, rates may go up again. So, and they may go up again. So I, I, I focus on prime rate, right? So mm. why do I focus on prime rate? I focus on it because it doesn't change. It doesn't fluctuate 20 basis points every day. You know, I, I've said this to someone in the past, every time you know, the bonds are up and down 20 basis points, Everyone's Fed chairman. Everyone knows what's going to happen. So prime rate just sits there. It mm. stares at you, daring you to figure out what's going to happen next, right? It doesn't change. Eight and a quarter, eight and a half, wherever it's going to be, eight and a half, right? So what will probably happen is they'll stay elevated for a little mm. bit of time. And at some point, hopefully there won't be a lot of pain for people. Hopefully, nobody wants pain. There may be some, and then maybe rates will come down. Is mm. it six months from now, three years from now? If I knew that, I would buy the boat. I would sail off the same parts and go trade interest rate futures, you know? Okay. But I, I do think it'll stay elevated, um, which presents challenges to a lot of people uh, who have debt coming due now and who may not have, not have the capacity to put mm. equity in to pay down a loan. Right. Um, but it may not. Like, you know, maybe something other, maybe something you never know. terrible happens. Right. Hopefully it doesn't. And rates go down because they have no choice to slash them by 200 basis points. But that might mean the economy is in worse shape. Mm. We don't know. So if I'm guessing, if I'm betting, I'm betting they stay elevated Got it. for a bit. Okay. A bit. And I want to get into sort of your mindset with how you approach business and how you approach your company. Um, how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your company? Good question. So my first goal is I got to wake up in the morning and get, you know, get, my, get myself going. I, I try to look at it as where was I last year? Where was I five years ago? 10 years ago, you know, and I'm a little older, I can go back 20 years, let's say, you know, and 30 years even working. And um, where do I, 40 years actually, where do I want to be five, 10 years from now, right? So I don't have a specific goal in mind saying, I have to make $100 million by the time I'm 60. Mm. Or third, some people want to do it by the time they're 25, and great, you know. There, there, there's no specific dollar goal. I want to keep building a business, one investment at a time, one deal at a time, make investors happy, make myself happy, save some money, put some money aside in other things and keep growing it and growing it and growing it. It's not a goal of, I have to do $500 million this year and in, in, in whatever, otherwise everyone's gonna, gonna right. hate me and think poorly of me. I don't care about any of that, right? I care that each investment we make, and we only make about six a year. This year we've done five, but we only make about six or seven a year. Um, every investment has to be a stepping stone to the next investment, the next success and gradually, gradually right. grow. Sometimes the, the successes come faster, Sometimes slower. That's just the way it is, right? But I don't, I've never wanted to put, I have goals in terms of general where I want to be. Um, but if it doesn't re hit it, it doesn't set me back necessarily because there are setbacks in life, right, right? Of course. Some years are better, some years are less better. I've had, well, I like to look at my business as I've had good days, you know, maybe not such good days, but no bad days, right? Because once you think you have bad days, you put yourself in a poor, in a poor mindset, I think. So, you know, the, the goal is to every day get better at what we're doing, find smarter investments, deal with the market as it is, mm. not as I wish it to be, right? Take all the emotion out of it, which is sometimes hard to do, and just keep one, one foot in front of the other every day and just go forward. Awesome. That's great. Um, and what do you think has been the most difficult point in your career? And how did that kind of shape you as an individual from that point on? Wow, good question. So... Several years back, I couldn't figure out what to do with my career. It just wasn't working out. Mm. I couldn't put deals together. I couldn't sell things. I couldn't get loans done. It was like a painful experience, right? The bills never stop. They never stop, right? The income dries up, whatever. The bills never, never stop. stop. So you only really know about yourself 
and what you're capable of and what you can handle and what your family is capable of when things are not mm. good. When things are great, everyone's a genius, right? Mm. When things are, are not so great, you learn how what you can take. You learn about resilience, how to make it happen, how to work, how to pray harder, how to work harder, how to be smarter, how to deal with your family, right? So, you know, we've had some, you know, not such great, uh, good, not, good days, not so good days, let's say, some not so good days in terms of business. Most people, I think, have. Um, we were able to get through it with a vision that it will get better, it can get better, just figure it out, dummy, right? You know, <laughs> just sit there and figure it out. And it took me some time to figure it out. And when I finally figured it out, it was that one step after another, that slow progression. And I figured it out in my, again, for the second time in my early 50s. Mm. So I, you know, in the early in my career, it worked, it was great. Then it got slow, then it got great. Things got slow again. Now it got good again, thank God, right? But I try to, you, you, you learn a lot of resilience when things are not so good and how to cut back on things and mm. what's really important. And it makes you think harder. You, sometimes you, you, know, you get sloppy periodically if you're too if you're doing too well right. let's say so we closed a deal a couple of years ago it was a great deal oh you're not why are you not excited i said i'm not excited I go, i'm going to work tomorrow mm. I go to work. it's great i'm happy we've got a good investment we'll do well god willing but we gotta go to work tomorrow i right. oh, just got paid off on the loan that's great yeah, it's great i gotta go to work tomorrow you have to go to work tomorrow right you have to build the next thing because once you get all full of yourself that's the end of it you right. know so the, the, the difficult times the challenging times kind of teach you how to do that mm. Um, if you've been on, you know, if you're born on third base, sliding into home, God bless you. It's great too, you know. But uh, you know, there was a, guy, a gentleman named Ace Greenberg. He ran Bear Stearns for many decades, right? And uh, he always wanted somebody. He hired. They said, "Do you hire MBAs?" And he used to say, "I hire PSDs." Like, what's a PSD? You know, poor, smart, and dumb. You know, he just, <laughs> and, and you know, he just wants people to not, right. not be too, you know, poor. No, poor, smart with desire to be rich. Hunger. That's everything. So they got to be poor. They're hungry. They got to be smart. They have a desire. You know, so. You have to have that and it's not always easy but mm. i learned a lot from it I'm, I'm, it, it, it's almost an advantage to having to struggle to make it back of course because you kind of realize what's gone wrong and had to be even more careful the next time of course hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> definitely and elliot we talked before this about how you have a kind of a gym routine where you go to the gym four or five times <laughs> a week about gym now? <laughs> <laughs> how how important is that to your business and to your yeah. overall mental health and how has that kind of helped you? i have totally prioritized my health i am in the gym exercising four to five days a week i've increased the intensity and of the exercises and i've increased the time and the amount of days so before COVID, i've always exercised my whole life once upon a time i was an amazing basketball player i was the best probably, you know, in my own mind anyway right i've always been in the gym for years i guess a few years before covid i started slacking off a little bit and gaining weight and not going as much and it wasn't good got covid got sick Got better, thankfully. It took me months. Doctor said, you know, you're dangerously close to being mm. on medication the rest of your life. And that was all I had to hear. And that was it. So I got back into the gym very slowly. But I'm now, you know, then it took some time. I built it up. Today, great for the mental state of being. Great for the physical state of being. Whether I get to the gym at 6.30 in the morning or 7.30 in the morning, unless I have to be somewhere at 8 o'clock or 8.30, I'm in the gym first thing in the morning, four or five days a week. Great. And just taking care of my health. Eating better. Not perfectly. My, my diet has gone from really awful to just awful. So it's gotten better, you know, but it needs, it needs some work. It needs some work. But I think it's crucial, crucial, crucial for people to stay in shape. Young people, older people. It's great for the mindset. Mm. I always feel the best when I'm exercising and I feel good. When I gain those 15, 20 pounds back and I'm sitting on the couch just stuffing my face, I never feel good. Got it. Feel good. So when I'm in the gym every day, it's a mental advantage over people. It's a physical advantage over people. Uh, if you don't, if you're not doing it, you should be. And you mm. don't need to be Mr. America or Mrs. America. You need to walk 20 minutes a day to get started. You know, just right. something. Something, yeah. Started. But for me, it's been a tremendous help. And uh, I didn't go this morning, so I took my day off today. So okay. it's like a little, little, little pep in my step. But uh, we try to be there as much as possible. Got it. Okay. What idea do you believe about a specific asset class or a submarket that many people you respect would disagree with you on? Well, everyone disagrees with me. I, I, I disagree <laughs> with everyone. One of my partners says I'm an acquired taste. I think he told me. Another broker introduces me to people. He goes, "This is Elliot. No one kills a deal faster." You know. So, I, I think so. I have an opinion about certain office markets that'll be okay. Mm. Most people have the opposite opinion that you're wrong, you're gonna get killed. I think every loan I've ever done, I've ever I've ever closed on, there was someone who told me you're gonna be wrong, mm. you're gonna lose all your money, you're gonna get destroyed. I don't know why they say these things, but they do. I try to weed out that noise. I have one investor whose opinion I rank very highly because he's a truly astute investor 
who gets the broader picture of everything. I have a couple of partners whose opinions I value very highly. But for the most part, I don't mind people thinking that I'm wrong because sometimes they may be right. I've admitted sometimes other people may be right, right? And sometimes it just solidifies my opinion that when everyone hates something or when everyone loves something, everyone is typically wrong. So mm. I took a contrarian approach recently and I bought some mortgage REITs in my IRA. I didn't put all my money in the world in it. But I said, you know what? Wall Street loved these investments when they were yielding 7%. They outright loved them. They couldn't go wrong. And now the stocks are down 30, 40, 50, mm. 60%. They're yielding 12, 13, 14, 18%. There's risk. But I'd argue there was more risk when they were yielding 7%. Mm. And there's more risk when the, when the debt markets are 3% when everything looks so perfect. So I bought some of them. And people said, oh, how could you buy them? A couple of my friends actually said, you know, good idea. I'm going to buy them. Because... <laughs> I don't need the money this minute. It's going to sit there in the IRA. Hopefully it'll, I'm hoping the dividends don't get cut. I don't know if they will, but they may not. They may not get cut. So you sometimes need that contrarian approach, like like the what would Sam Zell do approach, mm. you know, passed away recently, unfortunately. You have to have that contrarian approach. Um, most people have an opinion based on what they read in the newspaper, what their friend says. They haven't really spent the time to understand the specific market, mm. the broader market, what's happening as a broader perspective. They're very sort of... Um, narrowly focused on what they think is right which is okay too every every person has to have their own opinions but I, I don't i don't i don't try to argue with people if an investor tells me it's not a good deal like okay thank you very much okay you know, yeah. move on and you know you can't, don't invest or do invest if they have a cogent argument i'd love to hear it and then maybe have a little right. back and forth on it or maybe i don't but i'm not going to try to convince somebody to invest and i don't I don't listen to most people's opinions because it clouds my judgment. If you don't have your own opinions, you can't be an investor, right? Mm. You have to have some opinions that you may coalesce around, but most people just, you know, they may they may be very successful selling, you know, paper clips for a living, but you may not really know about real estate, you know, or you might be a great, you know, arthroscopic surgeon, but you might not know about debt investments, right? You just may not. I don't know about, you know, fixing toilets, but I own, real, I own buildings, right? right? I don't know about floor plans, but we own a lot of buildings, right? Thank God, investors yeah. and and uh, and debt investments. So I, I formulate my opinions. I watch what smarter people are doing, but I just I go with what I kind of think. Got it. Okay. And as a lender, do you think it's more profitable to be long-term optimist or a long-term <clears throat> pessimist? So most lenders are, I think, pessimist by nature. I'm a pessimistic optimist, okay. right? So <laughs> when I make an investment, I always hope I want the sponsors to do well. I want the borrowers to do well. It's just good karma to wish everybody well. But I always think, what could go wrong? So in a debt investment, you have a little bit of an of an edge because you're sitting there at a lower basis. At a lower basis, but still things could go wrong. Mm -hmm. So I always try to look at what can go wrong. I, I always look at it that way. And the equity investments, I always look what can go wrong. And you know, sometimes things go wrong. So yeah, but again, it goes back to what we said earlier. You have to have the plan. What mm -hmm. if something goes wrong? So, but again, with debt investments, it's a little easier. A little, you have to be a pessimistic, optimistic realist. Right? Okay. <laughs> you have to, if, you, if you're always pessimistic, you never get anything done. If you're always a so flying high optimistic, you're going to be very wrong at some point when things turn. If you're somewhere in the middle trying to balance the scales, which is what you should do as an investor, balance the scales, cut out all the emotion if possible, um, I, I think that's where it, it, it's best suited for me. Okay, you know? awesome. Great. And... How do you recognize an opportunity that you want to go big on? Is it mostly based on intuition or is it mostly based on facts? Right. So a lot of what I do is based on gut feel, intuition, okay. instinct, and that which comes from years of experience. Mm. So like good experience, you know, what this is, I get there's another saying. It's not like uh, you know, experience comes from good judgment, good judgment comes from bad right. experience or something like that, right? So I can look at something within literally within seconds and say, I hate this, right? Mm -hmm. Or sometimes in a minute, I go, oh my God, this is amazing. Let's dive on. This is like really incredible. Yeah. Let's dive on this. Like we should be diving on it both hands, right? A lot of it's intuition. The numbers have to pan out. The diligence has to pan out. It has to be as presented. You know, we, you can't fool yourself. But it does become instinctual after a while because the spreadsheet is only as good as you make it, right? You can make it a three cap exit. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. You can make it a $7,500 a foot condo sale in a $3,000 market because you might think it'll be there mm. in five years, but the spreadsheet doesn't make May it not, so. Yeah. In fact, it probably is wrong, right? So I, I have a standing bet with anyone who wants that that spreadsheet will not be right. It'll be this way or that way, but it will not be exactly what you you know put there, 17.82% uh, IRR in four years, right? So you have to 
have an instinct about it, which some people have tremendous instincts. Like they can just like knock it out of the park. Some have learned instincts. Like I've had to learn how to have that gut instinct. It's a learning process too, I think, based upon life experiences. And it can't be all about the spreadsheet, but yes, the diligence has to pan out. Mm. It just and, and if everything is in your favor, if your gut is telling you, typically if your gut's telling you, it's probably right. But if the diligence really changes, you got to be able to switch on a dime. Got it. And either not not go ahead or just you know rejigger it somehow. Okay, understood. And who do you learn from at this point in your career? Everybody. There's so many smart people out there. I read a lot. I read Howard Marks. Guy's brilliant. The guy's brilliant. I, I don't know if you're listening. I hope you are. <laughs> I don't know where you find time to write these things. I read everything you write. You're brilliant, right? Um, I've read over the years Jim Rogers, who's a, who's a former stock trader, investor, very smart guy. I read a lot through Bloomberg. There are a lot of smart people out there. You can read a lot, learn a lot. Um, Fortune has a lot of good articles, Fortune Magazine periodically. Um, I speak to smart guys. I speak to very smart people. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I know a lot of smart people, right? So maybe I got some osmosis there coming in. But there are some brilliant writers and brilliant strategists who just have their finger on the pulse. What I don't like is people that say, uh, you know, um, the office market is terrible. It's coming down. So where were you five years ago? Like, mm. where, where was your prognostication on the office? Oh, we loved it then. Oh, okay, thank you. Like, so people don't really talk about what they said then. Like the Wall Street analyst with, you know, buy ratings on all the mortgage rates at 7% returns. That was tremendous. Now, caution, let's sell. And where were you, where were you when things would change? Right. Like, didn't you know things might change? Like you never assume something would change. But I always try to read as much as I can listen to some you know, podcast or some other TV shows. And there's Bloomberg has a great show with David Rubenstein sometimes, pretty smart guy, mm. broad-based economic yeah. thing. So there's a, there's a lot to find if you get if you had the time you know, to find it and search for it. But the weekend reading is always good to catch up. And um, But Howard Marks, I love you, man. <laughs> awesome. And, and Elliot, what drives you nowadays? Is it money, personal achievement, family, or philanthropy? It's li really a little bit of all of that, right? Okay. So you know, I want to always make sure the family's taken care of priority my, you know my children are all adults now but i still make sure they're taken care of. i've got grandchildren i'll make sure god willing you know they're taken care of always good to make money you know it's always good it's not the end all be all in life but you have to but bottom line is you have to make money you got to pay bills right you have to have it charity is a great thing to do it's great to help people you know you never know you may you, you may be stuck in a situation it's great to help people if you have the capacity to do it there's nothing greater than giving charity to people and helping and doing the best you can and it's a little bit of all of it you know you want to make more you want to have some entertainment in your life some some relaxation right. you want your family to have some fun um you want to help people it's really all of that you know? that's great and i have my final question to wrap it up sure what advice would you give to your 23 year old self Get a job for free at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> I don't care what you got to do. Get, okay. in, get in there at the bottom. No, I would give, it's funny. So I would give the same advice I had then. You had to learn from the bottom. I really would just get a good, when I was younger, I had, I had bottom jobs. You had to start at the bottom when I was younger, right? And most people were younger. Get a good foundation, really, and and study more and learn faster and don't, think you can't do it like give yourself more credit than you deserve because mm. you might just be smarter than you think you are and just but get that foundation start from the bottom learn harder work harder work smarter spend more time you know and if you do those things you know i, I think but also working for goldman sachs for free is also not so terrible right, right. but uh some people might some might argue with that but i've always wanted to i've always wondered how someone gets a job there they get like 1800 rounds yeah. of, of interviews but um yeah, just try your best every day and uh, don't beat yourself up too much. It's easy to beat yourself up. It's real simple to do that. Don't do it too much and just, you know, try to, as best as possible, maintain a, a positive outlook on things. It's not easy also. Life doesn't present that to you sometimes, but you have to do it. You have to, best you can do it, deal with the bad stuff and, and hopefully the good stuff keeps coming your way. Awesome. Yeah. Elliot, thank you so much. All right, that was Really great. appreciate thank it. You. I appreciate being here. Thank you. That was awesome.